Blog Talk Radio. Joni 
Fatora. Hope you like that song. Um, I have actually made a few new audio clips um, that are basically summaries or small intros into um, very famous literature. They would include Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, and Hedy's Folly. Hold on, let me tell you this artist, this, uh, this novelist, hold on, sorry, this is the more recent novel by Richard Rhodes, and it goes over sort of the intellectual side of this ravishing beauty who is once deemed the most beautiful woman in the whole world, Hedy Lamar. So I will play some of those. They're just little clips and intros and things like that. But um, I was testing out an app uh, that I put onto my phone. Um, it was It's called Easy Voice Recorder. Um, I did yesterday buy an actual standalone um, digital voice recorder. I've not used it yet, but I did buy it. I did open it, but I'm going to set it all up later so I can do more of those um, intros and summaries and excerpts hopefully for your listening pleasure, your audio pleasure. I hope you all enjoy that. I'll start out um, with one of those after just one or two songs. Um, I might start out with um, Slaughterhouse-Five just because that's an actual excerpt. The others are more like, you know, back of the book, middle of the book intro, this kind of thing. Um, but uh, Slaughterhouse-Five actually did um, the first couple of pages of that. So I will do that, and then um, the ultimate feature, uh, Hedy Lamar's Hedy's Folly, F-O-L-L-Y, shortly thereafter. But let me give you another song um, from one of the other new songs that I downloaded. Let me me flip through these. How come they're all disappearing now? I'll do Bullseye. Bullseye by Kay Drew. The call in number is 858-815-2333. Once again, 858-815-2333. Here is Bullseye by Kay Drew on Playtime with Sandra Radio.
Atlantis pole and the ever-incorrigible unicorn. I've lived nearly 52 weeks so far this whole year, packed my travel bags with freedom and feathers, but no fear, fed some goats, kissed a kitty, ran with puppies, far and near. Oh, Santa, dear Santa, where the fuck are my reindeer? I want half, but I'll settle for a third. Santa's unicorn. Thank <laughs> you.
happened, more or less. The war parts, anyways, are pretty much true. One guy I knew really was shot in Dresden for taking a teapot that wasn't his. Another guy I knew really did threaten to have his personal enemies killed by hired gunmen after the war, and so on. I've changed all the names. I really did go back to Dresden with Guggenheim money, God love it, in 1967, it looked a lot like Dayton, Ohio. More open spaces than Dayton has. There must be tons of human bone meal in the ground. I went back there with an old war buddy, Bernard V. O'Hare, and we made friends with a cab driver who took us to the slaughterhouse where we had been locked up at night as prisoners of war. His name was Gerhard Muller. He told us that he was a prisoner of the Americans for a while, we asked him how it was to live under communism, and he said that it was terrible at first because everybody had to work so hard and because there wasn't much shelter or food or clothing, but things were much better now. He had a pleasant little apartment, and his daughter was getting an excellent education. His mother was incinerated in the Dresden firestorm. So it goes. He sent O'Hare a postcard at Christmas time, and here is what it said. I wish you and your family also, as to your friend, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I hope that we'll all meet again in a world of peace and freedom in the taxi cab, if the accident will. I like that very much, if the accident will. I would hate to tell you what this lousy little book cost me in money and anxiety and time. When I got home from the Second World War 23 years ago, I thought it would be easy for me to write about the destruction of Dresden, since all I would have to do would be to report what I had seen. And I thought, too, that it would be a masterpiece, or at least make me a lot of money, since the subject was so big. But not many words about Dresden came from my mind then, not enough of them to make a book anyway, and not many words come now either when I have become an old fart with his memories and his pall malls with his sons full grown. I think of how useless the Dresden part of my memory has been, and yet how tempting Dresden has been to write about, and I am reminded of the famous limerick. There was a young man from Istanbul who soliloquized thus to his tool, You took all my wealth and you ruined my health, and now you won't pee, you old fool. And I am reminded, too, of the song that goes, my name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. I work in a lumber mill there. The people I meet when I walk down the street, they say, what's your name? And I say, my name is Jan Janssen. I work in Wisconsin. And so on to infinity. Over the years, people I've met have often asked me what I'm working on. And I've usually replied that the main thing was a book about Dresden. I said that to Harrison Starr, the movie maker, one time and he raised his eyebrows and inquired, 
Is it an anti-war book? Yes, I said. I guess. You know what I say to people when I hear they're making, writing anti-war books? No. What do you say, Harrison Starr? I say, why don't you write an anti-glacier book instead? What he meant, of course, was that there would always be wars, that they were as easy to stop as glaciers. I believe that, too. And even if wars didn't keep coming like glaciers, there would still be plain old death. When I was somewhat younger, working on my famous Dresden book, I asked an old war buddy named Bernard B. O'Hare if I could come to see him. He was a district attorney in Pennsylvania. I was a writer in Cape Cod. We had been privates in the war, infantry scouts. We had never expected to make any money after the war, but we were doing quite well. I had the Bell Telephone Company find him for me. They are wonderful that way. I have this disease late at night sometimes involving alcohol and the telephone. I get drunk, and I drive my wife away with a breath like mustard gas and roses. And then, speaking gravely and elegantly into the telephone, I ask the telephone operators to connect me with this friend or that one from whom I have not heard in years. I got O'Hare on the line in this way. He is short, and I am tall. We were Mutt and Jeff in the war. We were captured together in the war. I told him who I was on the telephone. He had no trouble believing it. He was up. He was reading. Everybody else in his house was asleep. Listen, I said. I'm writing this book about Dresden. I'd like some help remembering stuff. I wonder if I could come down and see you. And we could drink and talk and remember. He was unenthusiastic. He said he couldn't remember much. He told me, though, to come ahead. I think the climax of the book will be the execution of poor old Edgar Derby, I said. The irony is so great. A whole city gets burned down, and thousands and thousands of people are killed. And then this one American foot soldier is arrested in the ruins for taking a teapot, and he's given a regular trial, and then he's shot by a firing squad. Um, said O'Hare. Don't you think that's really where the climax should come? I don't know anything about it, he said. That's your trade, not mine.
And we're back. You're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio, and I'm your host, Sandra London of the LivingGrind.com. You just heard Bullseye by Kay Drew, Santa's Unicorn by yours truly, Sandra London of LivingGrind.com, uh, the Unforgiven Cottonmouth Remix, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five intro, and Monster by Nightcore. Um, I'm going to go into just reading off a few little things that are interesting to me. When I look, I always look on uh, Wikipedia before each show to see on this day in history, this thing or that thing happened. And so I wrote some down. So I'm just going to just going to briefly summarize or read a few of them. I stopped at 1960. I did not find every single thing on this particular day. Terribly interesting for tonight's show, but I just found these ones interesting. So in the year t- 229. Sun Quan proclaimed himself emperor of Eastern Wu. In 1683, William Penn, the almighty Quaker, love that guy, signed a friendship treaty with the Lenni Lenape Indians, also known as Delaware Indians, in Pennsylvania. In 1713, the French residents of Acadia were given one year to declare allegiance to British, to, Brit, to Britain, to Britain or leave Nova Scotia, Canada. In 1794, the Empress Catherine II of Russia granted Jews permission to settle in Kiev. In 1860, the U.S. Congress established the government's printing office. Uh, In 1868, Christopher Latham Scholes received a patent for an invention that he called the typewriter. In 1894, the International Olympic Committee was founded at the Sorbonne in Paris at the initiative of the Baron Pierre de Coubertin. Uh, in 1926, the College Board administered its first SAT exam. In 1940, Henry Larson began the first successful west-to-east navigation of the Northwest Passage from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. In 1947, the U.S. Senate followed the U.S. House of Representatives and overriding the U.S. President Harry S. Truman's veto of the Taft-Hartley Act. I first learned of the Taft-Hartley Act when I was an extra for the show called Southland. Some of you have maybe seen that show. (laughs) I've never watched a full episode, but I am in there as an extra, a very special extra. Come dress in fishnets, you know, be hookerish. (laughs) Those were kind of the directives for my attire for my appearance in that show. It was called Fixing a Hole was the episode's name. Anyway, 1966, the French National Assembly took the first step in creating the French community by passing the Loi Cadre, which transferred a number of powers from Paris to elected territorial governments in French West Africa. In 1959, convicted Manhattan Project 5, Klaus Fuchs, is released after only nine years prison uh, time and allowed to emigrate to Dresden to resume his scientific career. And in 1960, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration declared Enovid to be the first officially approved combined oral contraceptive pill in the world. I stopped at 1960. I didn't read further than that because I found so many things interesting that I was filling up the page very quickly. And I'm like, okay, I'm never going to stop reading if I keep doing this. Voila, there you are. Alrighty, up next, I will play a song, and then I will do a few more um, of the audio files. I will do Hedy Lamar's uh, spiel next. But uh, I'm going to give you another new song called Crave You by Flight Facilities. The call-in number is 858-815-2333. Once again, 858-815-2333. And you're listening to Playtime with Sandra Radio. I stare at you I see you won't be like the other ones do, 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 do. I 
come to think of it, there are no special qualifications for inventing. No school I know of offers such a degree. As a sculptor is someone who sculpts, as a writer is someone who writes, an inventor is someone who invents. The 1940s Austrian-American movie star, Hedy Lamarr, was an inventor. The public relations department at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, where Hedy began her American film career, put out the claim that she was the most beautiful woman in the world. And by Western standards, she may have been. It annoyed her deeply, however, that few people saw beyond her beauty to her intelligence. Any girl can be glamorous, she famously and acidly said. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. Hetty invented as a hobby. Since she made two or three movies a year, each one taking about a month to shoot, she had spare time to fill. She didn't drink and she didn't like to party, so she took up inventing. When she was a girl, her father, a Viennese banker, had encouraged her interest in how the world worked, taking walks with her, explaining the, me the mechanics of the machinery they encountered. As a young woman, before she emigrated from Austria to the United States, she married a munitions manufacturer and listened in on the technical discussions he held with his Austrian and German military clients. She also had a keen sense of the world's large and small failings, some of which she decided she could fix. In Hollywood, she set up an inventor's corner in the drawing room of her house, complete with drafting table and lamp and all the necessary drafting tools. Hetty conceived of her most important invention in 1941, in the dark years between the German invasion of Poland in September 1939 and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. That finally impelled the United States to enter the war. She wanted to help her newly adopted country, where she was still technically an enemy alien, and saw the need for a weapon to attack the German submarines that were devastating North Atlantic shipping. It's characteristic of her confidence in her inventive gift that she believed she could devise a weapon and help change the course of the war. Her belief was folly in two senses of that fine old word extravagant and consequential invention, and founded on the foolish notion that the United States Navy would take correction from a Hollywood actress of great beauty in a matter about which it was not prepared to listen to its own submarine commanders. Her unlikely but ideal partner in that work was an avant-garde composer and concert pianist named George Antiel. At five feet four, a cello-sized man, as Time Magazine put it, a New Jersey native whose father owned a shoe store, Antiel was not like Hetty, an amateur inventor, but he was nearly polymathic in his gifts. When Hetty revealed her idea to him, he immediately saw a way to give it practical form for the purpose of patenting it. That practical form linked back to Antiel's most notorious composition, a 20-minute rhythmic cacophony of grand pianos, electric bells, drums, xylophones, a siren, a gong, an airplane propeller, and 16 synchronized player pianos called Ballet Mécanique, which premiered in Paris in 1926. In his Paris days, before he moved to Hollywood to make a living writing film scores, Antiel was a good friend of Ernest Hemingway, Igor Stravinsky, the bookseller Sylvia Beach. The Antiels lived for 10 years in a small apartment on the mezzanine of Beach's famous Shakespeare and Company bookstore, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, and most of the rest of the fabled crowd of expatriates who helped make Paris a world center of art, music, and literature in the years between the two world wars. Hetty in Virginia, or Hetty in Vienna, George in Paris, and then the two of them meeting up in Hollywood to invent a fundamental new wireless technology makes a remarkable story at the center of Hetty Lamar's long and fascinating life. Except in the matter of her beauty, which she valued least of all, people regularly underestimated her. She deserved better. The real story will amaze you. From a Pulitzer Prize winning author, the fascinating and completely true story of how a film star and a composer invented the technology that makes wireless networking and GPS devices possible. What do legendary film siren Hedy Lamarr 
avant-garde composer George Antius and your cell phone have in common? The answer is spread spectrum radio, a revolutionary invention based on the rapid switching of communication signals among a range of different frequencies. Without it, we would not have the digital comforts that we take for granted today. Wireless phones, Bluetooth networks, GPS devices, and most <coughs> military communications rely on Lamar and Antio's breakthrough. Only a writer of Richard, Ro Richard Rhodes' caliber could do justice to this remarkable chapter in the history of American innovation, which juxtaposes Hollywood's dazzling glamour with the brutal realities of war. Silver screen bombshell Hedy Lamar was born Hedwig Kiesler in Vienna in 1913. At the age of 17, she became notorious for her role in Ecstasy, a scandalously erotic, scandalously erotic film. At 20, she was unhappily married to an Austrian arms dealer to the Nazis. When she fled alone to America before World War II, she took with her not only theatrical talent and beauty, but also an unusually thorough knowledge of military technology and its challenges gleaned at her husband's dinner table. An introduction to the dashing Georges Antilles, a, ma a maverick composer and inventor at a Hollywood gathering, culminated two years later in their obtaining a joint patent with the U.S. for a jam-proof radio guidance system for torpedoes, the unlikely duo's gift to the Allied war effort. Hedy's folly transports us to the forests of Austria, 1920s Paris, the depths of the Atlantic, and Golden Age Hollywood, introducing us along the way to riveting characters plucked from the worlds of science, music, cinema, and the military. Graced by the narrative verve and historical rigor we've come to expect from Richard Rose, it is a long overdue celebration of two unusual amateur inventors who collaborated to change the world. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, 
of this novel has never been questioned since that day in October 1856 when its, when its first installment appeared in the Revue de Paris. The author was immediately recognized as one of the rare spirits of his century. Gustave Flaubert became the pioneer of a new and sweeping movement in letters, the founder of realism in the novel. He was the mentor of Zola, Daudet, the brothers Goncourt, and de Maupassant, he strongly influenced the early works of Thomas Mann, Theodore Dreiser, Arnold Bennett, and many of our contemporaries. But all this does not explain the extraordinary vitality of the book itself, which has actually increased in popularity with succeeding generations of readers. There have been readers important novels before Madame Bovary and after it, respected for their influence upon the great stream of literature, milestones, and world progress toward a richer art. But many have disappeared from print, their recollection preserved only by literary historians. Madame Bovary has transcended literary fashion. It has never had to be revived or rediscovered because people have never stopped wanting to read it. From one span of years to another, in many languages and lands, publishers have continued to print new editions of this masterpiece because new readers have continued to ask booksellers for copies. Its original appearance was attended by a certain amount of scandal. The author and publisher were prosecuted in court for portions that were considered obscene. The charges were dismissed because of the obviously and inherently moral character of the book, and the passages that were questioned seem very innocent today. But the notoriety it received helped to sell Madame Bovary when its magazine serialization was completed and it also aroused the interest of publishers in other countries who commissioned translations. In 1881, hundreds of thousands of new readers were gained in the United States when a number of firms, including Peterson, Monroe, and Rand McNally, issued inexpensive editions. More than a half million copies were sold during the 80s, and the book has since borne many imprints, some handsomely bound and lavishly illustrated, others more modestly covered in cloth that could withstand heavy library and school usage. Madame Bovary is a moving story told with depth and verity by a man of genius who added an extra dimension to the art of the novel. For those who wish to read more by and about Flaubert, we suggest the following books. By Gustave Flaubert, Sentimental Education, Salambeau, the Temptation of St. Anthony, The Three Tales of Simple Heart, The Legend of St. Julien, The Hospitalier, uh, Herodius, and Bouvard, and Pécouché. Books and essays about Gustave Flaubert, René de Menil, Gustave Flaubert, L'Homme et l'Oeuvre, 
Henry James, Flaubert, and Notes on Novelists, Walter Pater, On Style and Appreciation, Francis Stigmuller, Flaubert, and Madame Bovary, A Double Portrait. One of the glories of French literature, Madame Bovary, is the story of a dissatisfied woman bored with the tedium of everyday married life. With a candor that shocked his world, Flaubert pierced to the very core of this woman's heart. He showed how she longed romantically but frivolously for a life filled with excitement and novelty. He showed how Emma Bovary learned that life makes all people, even beautiful women, pay for what they want. He noted the small, seemingly petty details of a sensual woman's daily existence with realism and significance, and he told with a fierce honesty how a married woman suffers when she takes a lover. Madame Bovary is a brilliant book, the greatest portrait ever written of a woman's soul in revolt against conventional society. Je suis dans la vie comme dans mes rêves Et quand je crève, je suis le cri De qui me croit ou qui me prie Je suis comme ça dans la vie Je renie jusqu'à mon sang Et je ne sens plus qui je suis Il n'y a plus d'innocent J'aimerais dire que je sais ma route Et que je ne doute que quand j'ai bu Mais vu que je suis à nu Plus personne avec qui Ruminer mes envies et vivre sans avoir l'air J'ai comme un courant d'air Derrière la vie mon frère Pleure de me voir si triste Car et je me laisse en sur dans mon lit Je n'ai pas dormi aussi mal que depuis la nuit Où j'avais rêvé avoir tué de son froid un homme Comme avec une âme que j'avais trouvée là sur le sol Mes jours se suivent et ne se ressemblent que par leurs bêtises Je n'attise pas le feu mais je veux qu'on me dise Pourquoi la vie est une pute, pourquoi veut-elle qu'on l'écoute Pour nous pousser vers la chute avec l'amour dans les côtes Je ne sais pas mais j'aimerais être un peu plus forte Pour me battre contre ceux qui nous préféreraient morts
Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Merrily, 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 life is down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Just really- 